Popak Smith can use in criminal prosecutions. We're seeing We're it all over again in a civil case brought by two Fulton County election workers, uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, against Rudy Giuliani, where Julie, Rudy Giuliani, who's been a lawyer for, well, now suspended in one state and soon to be disbarred in another, but was a lawyer for 50 years, is screwing up the exchange of documents so badly that he's given the opponents, the plaintiff's lawyers, the opportunity to file a motion for sanctions, which they did on 7-11, what an unlucky date for Rudy Giuliani, against him, telling the judge that Rudy Giuliani in the last 18 months has not meaningfully participated in discovery in producing documents or evidence in this case, despite his requirement under the law and court order to do so. And as a result, he should get the equivalent of a civil case death penalty. The case should be decided against him at this juncture without even going to trial. That a default judgment should be entered against him because of what he's doing. That is the first headline for the motion that was just filed by Shea Moss and Rudy. Rudy Giuliani you know, could likely seek, he'll likely be hit with default judgment as a result of game playing and failure to cooperate and his good faith obligations to discover. Headline one. Headline two is that Rudy produced privilege logs, which I'm going to explain in a little bit of a breakout session of Legal AF right here. Privilege logs listing 25 pages, all of the documents he is not at the moment going to produce, but that he has in his possession, claiming some sort of privilege, which means it has to be ultimately decided by the judge after seeing those documents in camera, a Latin way of saying only the judge gets to see them first, and then decide whether they go over to the other side. Now, you're supposed to, well, let's, let me give you the, 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 the teaser first for the privilege log, and I'll tell you how poorly done the privilege log was for Giuliani and further compounding his problems. Firstly, let's talk about the names in it. Even if I don't know what's in it, this just, if you ever had any doubt in this relevant time period of the end of the election in early November through Jan 6th and beyond, who Rudy Giuliani was working for and who was in his, uh, and who was in his group, his gang, his civil conspiracy, his criminal conspiracy gang, well, just look at his text message lists and you'll have no doubt so if you go through there, you see the following names and groups and combinations of text messages. Bernie Carrick, disgraced, disgraced former police commander in New York who went to jail and was uh, pardoned or had his sentence commuted by Donald Trump. Jenna Ellis, who just barely didn't lose her law license for all the work she did with Rudy Giuliani as an incompetent election lawyer spreading falsehoods about the election where she had to admit to her bar association, her bar grievance committee, that she uh, to she told untruths about the election. Christina Bob, right, who's cooperating with the Department of Justice and was the lawyer for Donald Trump for all things Mar-a-Lago and beyond, and signed the certificate falsely claiming that everything in this envelope was all of the top secret information that Donald Trump retained at Mar-a-Lago, and that was a lie. So you also have uh, Victoria Tensing. Victoria Tensing is a uh, a woman who practices law with her husband, right wing, MAGA right wing. I mean, she just posted, we'll put it up here in my hot take, she just posted on her own social media that the um, arrest 
in the indictment in absentia because the guy fled the country to Cyprus, this spy for China of Israeli and U.S. citizenship, um, that that whole uh, Chinese illegal lobbying arms brokering, selling oil for the Iranians while an American citizen, that's all made up because he was also going to be a whistleblower for Joe Biden. But that, so that was her tweet we just saw. That Victoria Tensing, of course, is inside this, you know, QAnon, fake election uh, huddle with Team Crazy and its captain, Rudy Giuliani, while they're trying to overthrow the election, at least in the court system. So Victoria Tensing, you have Catherine Fries. Where is Catherine Fries? We have to put her on the back of a milk carton. Because Catherine Fries used to be a lawyer who was very proud to work with uh, Rudy Giuliani and all the others. Um, but she's nowhere to be found. She's so nowhere to be found that the lawyers in this defamation case against Rudy Giuliani have moved the judge to try to serve her, to find her, to serve her through alternate methods. She doesn't want anything to do with this case. She's a bar member somewhere, but they can't get her served. So, But, but at one time, she was happily and notoriously tweeting and texting and emailing with Rudy Giuliani. So she's in the text and the emails. Lara Logan, right-wing MAGA um, journalist. Mark Meadows is all over these texts with Rudy Giuliani during these relevant time periods, November through January. Sydney Powell, she should be disbarred as well. Cleta Mitchell, subject of criminal investigation by Jack Smith and the Department of Justice. Senator Townsend, why not throw him in there? Speaker of the Georgia House, Ralston. Well, we know what that one was about because um, that was recorded. And Fawny uh, Willis, the prosecutor in Fulton County, is investigating this phone call between Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, and the Speaker of the House, Ralston, in Georgia. Same kind of phone call that Rudy and Donald Trump made to Speaker of the House, Rusty Bowers, in Arizona, trying to get him to throw out the election and participate in the fake elector conspiracy. Ken Cheesebro. Come, come on down. You're on the text and email chain with, with uh, Rudy Giuliani, as we suspected, one of the architects of uh, using the Jan 6 Congress hearing and fake electors to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Um, and then you have interesting emails with, with Ray Line regarding lines that I'm sure Jack Smith is super excited about, like um, a 12-16-2020 text or email that says POTUS findings, P-O-T-U-S. That is exactly the moment leading to the December 18th meeting in the White House that went on for six hours involving Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, and the Overstock.com guy, they threw him in there, to talk about uh, uh, suspending the Constitution, invoking martial law, and seizing the uh, election equipment in order for him to cling to That's power, Trump to cling to power, outrageous. and make presidential findings to support Everybody that conduct. So they were up to the point of presidential that. findings to support martial law. martial law. And that's in this cache of documents currently being withheld, but soon to be uh, sent but over to the lawyers in, in the Shea Moss Ruby Freeman civil but defamation case. You see how I said at the top of the hot take, civil Justice cases. Department as a byproduct, pay dividends that can be used in criminal cases, and we're seeing it here. Boris Epstein, there's somebody who's likely to be indicted very soon by, by uh, Jack Smith. 
currently a lawyer for Donald Trump. But that never that never stopped anybody else who was a lawyer for Donald Trump either getting indicted, arrested, or put in jail. And Boris Epstein is probably next on that list based on his conduct. He, Bernie Carrick, Jason Miller, uh, a very close advisor to Donald Trump, and Christina Bob are having texts and emails all during the relevant time period. The head of the Republican National Committee, Rona McDaniel, come on down. You're going to be caught up in this conspiracy. Have you heard of senescent cells, also known as zombie cells? These old, worn-out cells no longer serve a useful function for our health, wasting our energy and nutritional resources. These zombie cells tend to accumulate in our bodies as we age, leading to the aches, slow workout recoveries, and sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-age feeling. Mm. With a daily drive and enthusiasm to get things mind. Who is Myrna Taraf? Well, according to um, Jenna Ellis and a tweet that she, that she put out, she... Jenna Ellis, and I got to get you the rest of this list because it's just it's just fascinating. Our, we're all part of an election integrity board, a phony election election integrity board that was formed by Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani to run around as if they were trying to protect the election and not steal it from Joe Biden and the voters. And on this board, which are all part of this chain of conspiracy, and in the ele- in the emails and text messages for Rudy Giuliani are. Here's the list on the text. Jenna Ellis, mm-hmm. Ken Paxton, the soon-to-be-impeached uh, Attorney General of Texas, uh-huh. Real P. Navarro, Peter Navarro, who's also a subject Real and not a target P. of criminal investigation by Jack Smith because Correct. of his role in, the, in uh, the fake elector scandal, Bernie Carrick, we've talked about him already, uh, Seb Gorka, right-wing extremist, and Myrna Taraf. Good for you, Myrna. Glad to see that Rudy Giuliani had to now throw you under the bus and properly reveal these things. Now, I said at the top of the hot take, his privilege log was garbage. Privilege log garbage. Why? Because I've been doing this for 33 years. And in a privilege log, you have to list enough data and information not to reveal the privilege you're allegedly protecting, if you you do have such a privilege, but enough for the judge and the other side to be able to have a coherent conversation about what the document is. So you don't have to reveal the privilege, but if you have a document, I'll give you an example. If Rudy Giuliani emailed Donald Trump to talk about uh, the fake elector scandal, then it should be listed on the privilege log Author, Giuliani. Recipient, Donald Trump. CCs, if there are any, list them. Subject matter, right? Then you'd have to come up with something that doesn't reveal the privilege. Uh, Elector certificates, I guess that would be enough. Uh, In battleground states. Uh, And then the date of that, and then you have to give it what's called a Bates number, a serial number at the bottom that's assigned to the case by the lawyers so they can keep track of these things. And then you can have this debate, and the judge can take a look at it it in camera, which is, again, she gets to see it first, not the other side, and then make the decision. But his his log, we'll put up one page of it, his log is completely incoherent. Sometimes he doesn't even list the people's last names. It's like Andrew. I assume one of the texts is with his son, Andrew Giuliani, with all these other people, which would effectively waive the privilege. But who knows? He puts Michael, he puts Andrew. Um, The one that's interesting is there doesn't seem to be any text with POTUS, with Trump, which is totally ridiculous. The other thing that is hanging 
hanging Rudy Giuliani on a short rope of his own making is that remember, in this, or let me tell you that in cases, lawyers go out to get documents from third parties. It's called third party discovery practice. You use a subpoena and you go to somebody like Christina Bob and say, give me all the documents you have of communications with Rudy Giuliani. And she produced those and so did other people. And the problem for Rudy is they produce things that he didn't produce, <laughs> which means he's hiding them or he's lost them. And that's what the lawyers have said in Purposely their motion for sanctions. Them. We don't know if he destroyed them, if he has them, if he doesn't, doesn't have matter. them, but it doesn't so matter. Because he had an obligation to preserve them. Yeah. And you, Judge, in March, liar. April, and May at hearings, Whoa. warned him that he needed to preserve them. And his lawyers have come to court and said, well, we, we, think, we think he preserved them. We're not sure if he preserved them. Maybe he preserved them. <laughs> wrong. These are the wrong responses of federal court to a federal judge. And then, let me just bring it full circle. The federal judge that's presiding over this case, right, is Beryl Howell. For those right. that follow Legal AF and hot takes like mine regularly, that name will ring a bell. She was, until recently, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit Court. And when she's not trying civil cases like this one, she had responsibility over all of the grand juries, including Jack Smith's grand juries. That's my stage voice, right? Uh, my stage whisper. And in that capacity, she evaluated whether, for instance, the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege applied to strip Donald Trump from attorney-client privilege and therefore have those documents go to the government because they were no longer covered by privilege. And force lawyers, Pat Cipollone, White House General Counsel, White House Counsel, Eric Hirschman, Deputy White House Counsel, um, ultimately Rudy Giuliani, uh, Evan Corcoran, Christina Bob found that they all had to testify. Donald Trump couldn't stop it because Donald Trump was more likely than not participating in a crime or fraud concerning the Mar-a-Lago documents, for example, and therefore yeah. did not have the privilege, did not have the privilege of having the privilege of attorney-client privilege. There's, there's a good way to sum up one sentence and three uses of privilege. Mm -hmm. Same thing could happen here. This judge is educated. She has a learning curve when it comes to crime, fraud, Trump, and others. So wait till the lawyers, if, if they don't get the default judgment that they wanted, and they go for these documents, which they're going to, they tell the judge, even if you found that there was an, a, an initial proper assertion of privilege over them, judge, crime fraud exception, they're all participating in a crime. You know that from the work that you did, Your Honor, related to Jack Smith's prosecutions. You see how this civil criminal ecosystem, this flow, these trade winds all kind of run into each other? Uh, and that's what we're talking about here on this optic. So, to summarize, civil cases help criminal cases because discovery sometimes is even more extensive there. And you get golden nuggets that stumble out. Just the way that the Dominion case against, Fo uh, against Fox News, right, created dividends for Jack Smith and also got Tucker Carlson fired. Same thing here. The Ruby Freeman Shea Moss case, which should have been settled a long time ago by, by Rudy Giuliani. In fact, the lawyers even mentioned that, that he had the potential for a settlement in his hands, and he let it slip through because he's cheap and he's stupid. And I don't care what he was in the 90s in New York, that's what he is today. And soon to be and a disgraced former lawyer and a disgrace to the profession. So they said, oh, well, he, had it. he could have had a settlement with us. 
but he blew it, just like he's blowing the case. We shouldn't even be talking about documents that they obtained. We, should, we wouldn't even know about them if he had settled the case. But attention, Jack Smith, if you don't already have all the documents that they got in their discovery, go subpoena, and I'm sure they'll turn them over that day, all the documents that Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman's lawyers have. in their disposal from what they got from Rudy Giuliani. And since you've already taken a proffer, remember Rudy Giuliani went in two weeks ago and testified under oath, not to the grand jury, but to the, uh, the Department of Justice and Jack Smith's team. He was given a queen for the day immunity, meaning as long as he doesn't lie at that moment, they won't use anything that they, he tells them against him if they decide to indict him. If they have the information independently, then there's, then there's no deal. But they won't use his exact words against him as long as he's telling the truth. Now the prosecutors have to, have to be wondering whether based on these texts and emails that are now currently covered by privilege, but they'll be able to see soon whether he was telling the truth when he testified under oath to them. And if he wasn't, when Rudy Giuliani, not if, is indicted, which I've already predicted on Legal AF, they will include a new count for lying under oath to the federal government when they came in. Bringing to a conclusion my hot take about how civil cases can, can positively impact justice in criminal cases. I do hot takes just like this one, connecting dots that you see and some that you don't even see. And I didn't even see until I started preparing the hot take only on the Midas Touch Network. We pull it all together in a long format podcast on YouTube. You can subscribe for free on the Midas Touch Network. We call it Legal AF. I do it on Wednesdays and I do it on Saturdays with my co-anchors Ben Micellis and Karen Friedman at Niffalo. I'm Michael Popak. You can follow me on all things social media, including threads at MS Popak. This is Michael Popak, Legal AF reporting. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news she of the day. What no are you waiting Instagram. for? Follow us now. Bob Dylan. Folk music roads rapidly changing full documentary amplified. Rock and roll died of its own weight in a way. Folk scene was happening at the village. It was just this sort of swamp of clubs and coffee houses. The guitar was like a magnet, you know, it could draw people in. People did get influenced by the romantic idea of a guitar and a sound. 
CSS. There were all these little factions. There were some people that were just into blues, some people that were just into bluegrass, some people that were just into the protest part of it. How could you beat an era like that? I mean, it was just a great scene and had an energy all its own that's seldom been repeated. The thing about Dylan is that Dylan kind of signified a sea change, and all of a sudden, you wrote your own song. It was just sort of like automatic, as opposed to no one even thought of doing that. And then suddenly, like, everyone didn't really think of doing that. Just thought, that's what you do. He changed everything. He's astonishingly better than almost everything else around him. When he started writing, that, that was a big paradigm shift right there. The bar was then set for, for good songwriting way, way before it was here, then it was here. There's a way to make an entrance. <laughs> American folk music, a broad, loosely defined term covering a range of genres derived from European and African musical forms and brought to the country by settlers of various nationalities. Ballads, hymns, songs and instrumental styles passed on through the generations by an oral tradition, yet constantly evolving. This music was the product of the lower classes, workers, peasants and slaves. By the early 20th century, while some genres had become established in popular culture, others had remained obscure, and these caught the attention of folklorists and archivists looking to study and catalogue traditional musical forms. New advances in recording technology enabled these academics to capture the sounds of America's neglected communities, and discoveries such as Lead Belly in 1933 by father and son folklorists John and Alan Lomax brought this music to a wide audience. And in an America wading through the Great Depression, the most receptive audience to the traditional sounds of folk music were the leftists, who championed these forms that had emanated from the lowest strata of society and which had endured without the interference of commercial interests. By the late 1930s, Lead Belly himself was transformed into a heroic figure by the Communist Party of the USA, who were growing considerably at the time, and folk music itself soon became political. There were a lot of things wrong with the Communist Party USA, but the folk movement was not one of them. It had its things wrong with the CPUSA problems, for sure. It was ideological. It was sentimental. It was uh, uh, moralistic in a way that wasn't going to convince anybody who didn't already agree with you. All of that stuff. Nevertheless, it was a brilliant creation. It was a creation, the notion of folk music. And it was created primarily, not entirely, by Communist Party intellectuals. In 1940, New York became the center of activity for an emerging folk scene. Here, the leading lights of the movement were establishing its political values while reviving and reassessing its musical talents. Alongside singer, songwriter, and activist Josh White, Led Belly, and his manager, Alan Lomax, were two white musicians. The young, middle-class New York native, Pete Seeger, and a singer and songwriter from Oklahoma, Woody Guthrie. 
These two artists in particular would become pioneering figures in the redefinition of American folk, penning their own material in the mold of the traditional songs that had inspired them, and using the music itself as a vessel for political commentary. They set the template for the artists who would follow in their wake. Pete and Woody meant the world to us. I mean, they were, uh, at, least, at least to me, I mean, I willingly followed the trail of Bayard Blaze. I mean, I've always said that uh, if it hadn't been for Pete Seeger, there wouldn't have been a folk music revival, anything approaching what, what actually happened. I mean, Pete really blazed the trail. I wanted to write songs that sounded like the songs that Woody wrote, except I wanted to try to make them my songs and my time, my, my era. This radical faction of folk music emanating from New York became muted after the end of the Second World War, with fascism apparently defeated and a new enemy emerging, communism. While Guthrie suffered declining health, Seeger formed the Weavers, and this group's less overtly political output struck a chord with the public them into the mainstream. Yet by the mid-1950s, both the Red Scare and the Cold War were escalating, and the anti-communist witch hunts led by Senator Joe McCarthy of the House Un-American Activities Committee put an end to the Weavers and derailed Pete Seeger's career. Folk refused to die. With the release of filmmaker Harry Smith's landmark compilation Anthology of American Folk Music in 1952, Introducing obscure recordings from the late 20s and early 30s to a receptive wider audience. And popular group the Kingston Trio emerging as one of the most commercially successful acts in America towards the end of the decade. Despite the brief revolution brought into popular music by rock and roll in the mid-50s, as the country entered the 1960s, a new generation of musicians began looking to the past once again, and word spread of a folk revival. You know, it's seen as this efflorescence. But I actually see it as the gathering storm that begins with Harry Smith, runs through the fact that there were folk hits uh, in, the, in the late 50s, like the Tarriers, three uh, Greenwich Village folkies who had a big hit with Banana Boat Song, which was then covered by Harry Belafonte, who was not without his folk connections either. I see it myself as an organic process. The first great efflorescence of rock and roll, which begins, say, with Maybelline in September of 55 and runs pretty strong through 58, does in fact really begin to tail off between 59 and 62. Not as bad as in myth, but nevertheless in a real way so that people are just the right age to turn from the music they like when they were a little younger. It's getting worse. They have new ideas. And, and they pick up on what was already in the air and in their own culture. About that time, we were starting to pick up on the Smithsonian and anthology. People started listening to these old recordings and started finding that these amazing artists, mostly blues artists, but also country artists and Appalachian artists, were not just these mythical figures that were coming to us on these scratchy recordings through the mists of time, but they were actually 
quite alive and well, most of them, but there was another component to the folk music scene. I would say it started with people like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. There was a sort of a branch of folk music that was mostly interested in songs of social relevance. And of course, all the wonderful songs that Woody Guthrie had written. So there were a lot of different factions. It wasn't just blues or Appalachian or bluegrass. It was, it was everything all at once. This growing interest in folk music spread to Minnesota. Young Robert Zimmerman, whose first band had performed Little Richard numbers at their high school in the large mining town of Hibbing, was one of many to grow disenchanted by the commercialization of rock and roll, and to subsequently be drawn to the earthier sounds offered by artists from the recent past. Still growing up in the 1950s, like uh, almost every American kid, his music is not folk music, it's, it's rock and roll and Elvis Presley and Little Richard. Uh, I, I mean, I suppose if you're Arlo Guthrie, then uh, it, it might be different, but uh, you'd be quite an unusual teenager to uh, be into folk music, uh, I think, at, at that age. There's a story, in fact, that he was given some old Lead Belly 78s on his graduation, and that was possibly his first introduction to, to his music, and he started learning and playing those songs. and St. Paul, where he's a very poor attender of uh, lectures and a very assiduous attender of the uh, folk clubs and coffee houses in Dinkytown, the uh, sort of bohemian district next to the, to the campus. And uh, I think it was probably a girlfriend who gave him his first uh, really gutty recordings. And he's transfixed. He describes this far more eloquently than I ever could in Chronicles, when he describes the moment he first hears Woody Guthrie as uh, like a heavy anchor dropping into the deep waters of the harbour. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. The Guthrie obsession grows and grows uh, until the point where feels uh, he's, he's ready to make the road trip to, to New York and seek the great man out. Zimmerman, now going by the stage name Bob Dylan, left Minneapolis in December 1960, having outgrown the local scene in Dinkytown, and after a brief stay in Chicago, finally arrived in Manhattan on January the 24th, 1961. Ever since the early 1940s, when Pete Seeger, Ned Belly, Josh White and Woody Guthrie had first congregated there, the city had remained the focal point of the folk world, and Dylan was just one of many artists drawn there from all across the U.S. He was a very romantic thing, to under New York, which was the place where the beats were, which was the place so many people were, Jackson Pollock put there, the abstract expressionists spoke there. I mean, New York was it, of course. And, um, 
San Francisco is very interesting. There wasn't really a, there didn't have the gravitas, the history. It wasn't as big, it didn't have the energy. That's, New York was the most important, like Sinatra said, you know, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. It was true then, it's probably true now. Now, the district of Manhattan that Dylan gravitated to was Greenwich Village, the artistic and bohemian hub of the city. There's nowhere else for him to go, but Greenwich. It's only in that area, Greenwich Village, that you can go for its own sexy life. Some acceptance of life, style of life. And you find anything that seems to be against the normal life in the village, you accept it. I was one of the few people that was on that scene that was actually born and raised there, John Sebastian and my old buddy John Hammond being the only other two I know that I can think of. And as a very little girl, I remember the village was, it had a very strong uh, Italian community. There was a very strong Ital Italian presence there. There were some neighborhoods that were Irish, first generation Irish, first generation Italian. But the other main um, population of the village was made up of all sorts of artists, musicians, dancers. I mean, I think from the early 1900s, it was a mecca for free spirits and free thinking people of all kinds. It was even the first place I can think of where people could openly be gay. So it was naturally, it became the epicenter for all things hip. And that, that was from the 1900s, early 1900s to the period in the early 60s that we're talking about. On the night of his arrival, Dylan stumbled upon the Café Noir, a small venue known to the local musicians as a basket house, where donations from the audience were collected at the end of the set. Appearing on stage that very night as part of an open mic show, or Houdinelli, across the following week, the young singer accustomed himself to the various clubs and cafes that made up the village folk circuit. The village was just a sort of swamp of clubs and it catered to tourists sometimes, catered to the locals who were like coffee houses. It didn't have cabaret licenses, so anything that happened entertainment-wise was had to be for free. First up there were the basket passing houses. Uh, that was the lowest level. Um, Richard most of them. And then there were places that actually paid something, like uh, the river end and the gas life in Hungary's Hope City, but most places were basket house houses. The idea of a basket house was none of the club owners paid you to play. You would walk in with your instruments, play a set. I mean, you had to be good enough. I mean, not just anybody could do it. Uh, and then pass a bread basket around, and people would fill it with money, maybe on a great Saturday night, you might get seven bucks worth of change in there. Then you pack up and go to the next one. And on that same circuit were John Hammond, Richie Havens, Jose Feliciano, John Sebastian, and various incarnations of different groups he had. All of us did it. 
and we would have food manners on Saturday night in a, I remember, I think it was a room at the YMCA on 23rd Street. Pete Seeger was often the MC. People like Reverend Gary Davis would be there, and my friend John Harold and some of the Greenbrier boys, various people, and we'd all sit in a big circle and each sing some songs and uh, sing some songs together. And it, it was all like one singing. The Wootenays were most important. They were, and they were also called Wheelings. They were places where people got together, and uh, they were great incubation points. And people came to them. They were very vibrant, and people uh, were honing their skills. And uh, not just the Wootenays, but they were watching Square Park. That was a great gathering place every Sunday. And uh, there was the fountain, and people came around. The uh, people were singing songs and playing their guitars and banjos and uh, exchanging, you know, swapping songs, whatever. And people were coming from all from all over the world, and everyone knew that Washington Square was the place to be. While keen to establish himself within this new, thriving environment, Dylan also had another priority. Thirty miles west of Greenwich Village, Woody Guthrie was interned at Greystone Park State Hospital in New Jersey, suffering from Huntington's disease. Since his introduction to Guthrie's work, Dylan, like fellow Greenwich Village musician Rambling Jack Elliott, had begun to imitate not only the musical style, but also the mannerisms of the ailing old artist, and his itinerant non-conformist lifestyle and ragged persona had proven inspiration. Over the following year, the young folk singer from Hibbing, Minnesota, was a regular visitor at Guthrie's bedside, and the pair became close friends. He came looking for me. He came looking for me. He really struck a lot of people for his independent style, which I assume the younger people of that generation try to emulate. The independence and the, the willingness to go a different way and the normal way breaking away from family times, living part hobo, just getting down to a trade or a job. And you know, it was in a great experiment. People like Pete Seeger were very radical politically and of course had been through the whole McCarthyite era. But they were, at the same time, very respectable, uh, very bourgeois, if you like, um, earnest uh, 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 about their causes and about their music. Guthrie and his followers, like Lambert Jacquelier, represented a different strand of the folk tradition, which was much earthier, which was uh, closer to the common people, for want of a, 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 a better phrase, and, uh, you know, of course, Guthrie took to the road and uh, was a, a, a rambling, gambling man who, who rode the rails. There's that outlaw quality to it. So that strand of folk music is probably far more attractive to teenagers steeped in 50s rock and roll than, than the rather serious, dare I say, po-faced Pete Seeger approach to, to the music. Back in 1927, I had a little farm and I called that heaven. Well, the price is up and the rain come down and I hauled my crops all into town. I got the money. Bought clothes and groceries. 
fed the kids and raised the family. Rain quit and the wind got high and a black old dust storm filled the sky and I swapped my farm for a Ford machine and I poured it full of this gas eileen and I started rocking and rolling over the mountains out towards the old peach bowl. <laughs> Dylan was quite genuine in his love and admiration for Woody Guthrie. I mean, it's not a case of him cynically trying to ride on Guthrie's coattails. He goes out to the hospital and visits him, and uh, you know, I think he's, he's, he's genuinely in awe of the man. But there's no doubt that because Guthrie warmed to Dylan and took him as a, a kind of unofficial protege in a way, that this helped Dylan enormously back in Greenwich Village. There's a story that when Dylan first visited Guthrie in hospital, Woody gave him um, a card which said on it, I'm not dead yet. And uh, Dylan went flashing this all around uh, 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 Greenwich Village. So, you know, he, he, he literally was carrying Woody Guthrie's calling card. So, yeah, it was an enormous help to him to have the support of such an influential figure. That said, you know, I mean, he'd have, he'd have made it anyway. It might just have taken him a little bit longer. Having performed on the Greenwich Village circuit, albeit briefly, and having established contact with his musical hero, within the first two weeks of his arrival in New York, Dylan also headed to Izzy Young's Folklore Center, a small shop that offered both materials for study and a gathering place for the local folk artists. It started off as a bookstore selling folk music books, but also sold records and music instruments. And then this wonderful guy, Izzy Young, who put it together, he also had little store concerts. So it was really a center. Every time one of these people came in from out of town, the first place they'd go would be to the folklore center, and you could find out what's going on. Not just a half a block away with all these little clubs, coffee houses, and so on. But I think what was going on in the folklore center was, at least for me, was the center of it because you could look at records from all over the country, you could look at books, old books, song books, photographs of singers, the instruments hanging on the wall, and other musicians would come in there. Anybody who came to my store, I would let most of people. I had records in the store for all the new folk music records, and I had a, a copy of each one. And I still remember uh, people would look at one or two, but the person that looked through every damn record I had was Bob Dylan. And I didn't know him from nobody. He just worked in the store one day. But he knew what he was doing long before he came to New York City. It's a lot of baloney like, oh, wow. I come to New York City, wow, wow, things are happening all over, wow, wow. But he was ambitious long before he came to New York. He was borrowing records from all his friends and not returning them and things like that. So he was listening to every fucking thing he could listen to. Uh, my place was the place where he could relax. By February 1961, Dylan was performing regularly at the Café Noir, the Commons and the Gaslight, growing in confidence within this new and more competitive environment. Yet the larger upmarket venues such as Gerdy's Folk City, the Limelight and the Village Gate remained off-limits. Dylan's act not yet refined enough to gain him access to the top tier of the village circuit. He approached me for an audition, and I said, okay. I uh, took him to a coffee shop that opened at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 
uh, was called the caricature. There's caricatures all over uh, this coffee house. And there was a woman who had a full-time job earlier, and she opened at 5 o'clock, and so we went over there. It was empty and quiet, and so And he performed a few songs. I must tell you personally, I wasn't impressed. And the reason is, you know, I said, you know, I, I know Woody Guthrie, I, I like his stuff, and Jack Elliott was around doing that stuff, and I said, well, besides, I was too crazy about that sound, you know. I, I know I knew it wasn't his natural sound, you know, but he wasn't a note <laughs> So, uh, I, I just wasn't impressed at that point. And besides, <clears throat> I didn't know at that point, early that point, how much it would have helped me in my place, the village gate, to put such a performer. Um, I did take unknowns, but there wasn't that much of an emphasis for me to take them on at that point. Yet where some of the older guards saw only another Woody Guthrie imitator, other young artists on the village scene quickly took notice of this new arrival and were very aware that Dylan offered something new. The first time I saw him in May 61 at Hoot Night on Monday, his phrasing obviously was part a total rasp on traditional plus rock and roll. And I've considered like, you know, rock and roll, which I adore, and pop music, which I adore, these you know, never the never the twain shall meet their 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 two one 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 is through the mountain, one is the sea, they can never possibly, possibly find happiness together. And Dylan had like put them together. I'm not talking about Dylan going electric and sixty five, I'm talking about his like 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 singing, his phrasing. And I realized that these two disparate, you know, like like loves of mine were actually capable of being a singularity, which blew my mind. I mean, like, like the guy, I mean, like, I thought, like, that guy can, that guy can really sing. He can, you know, like, uh, Dylan can sing. I mean, what? <laughs> Dylan quickly progressed on a scene that was itself blooming. Having been accepted into the circles surrounding prominent members of the folk establishment through his friendship with Guthrie, including Pete Seeger, Alan Lomax, and Jack Elliott, he also took up with his contemporaries on the scene. These fellow developing musicians, Mark Spalestra, Richard Farina, and Dave Van Rock, among many others, provided not only a close-knit social group, but also a well of musical ideas and independently discovered material, which Dylan would actively absorb. By April, he secured a supporting slot opening for John Lee Hooker at Gerdes Folk City, and by May, he began to incorporate two of his own early compositions into his sets. Still seen as only one of a number of budding folk singers, however, Dylan pressed the New York Times folk critic Robert Shelton to review one of his shows, keen to rise to greater prominence. When Shelton finally agreed, the resultant review, published on the 29th of September 1961, immediately established Dylan as an artist to watch. The New York Times was an immensely powerful newspaper, and Shelton was the folk music critic. I mean, he knew all the, all, not just the folk, I mean, he, he, he'd know Woody Allen, and he'd watch gigs by, by Bill Cosby in Greenwich Village. He really had his finger on the pulse. Um, was respected, was, was, by all accounts, pretty incorruptible. I mean, you know, he, he, he reviewed straight down the line. And I don't think you can underestimate the impact that Robert Shelton's review of Bob Dylan had when it appeared in the New York Times. I mean, this put him so far ahead of his contemporaries. I mean, the fact that the New York Times had a designated folk critic at this point tells you how booming the, the, the folk revival is. Um, 
And I think Shelton recognised that uh, Dylan was something quite different. This was not the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul and Mary. It wasn't even Joan Byers and Odetta. It was coming from, from somewhere else completely. People started taking notice of him. Robert Shelton did this killer article on him in the New York Times. And, and that was the first time we had a sense of there was some that some of us might rise to anything above hoot nanny status or just sitting around jamming at somebody's house or whatever. And then, of course, by then, Joan Baez, who was part of the Boston contingent of folk music, which was a very healthy scene in and of itself, she had a record out. Odetta had a, an album out by now. So we were starting to get a glimmer that this could go somewhere beyond the living room or, or Gertie's on a Monday night. Dylan himself was soon to have an album of his own. Before the Shelton article had been published, the young folk singer had encountered Columbia Records producer and talent scout John Hammond at a recording session for fellow village artist Carolyn Hester. On October the 26th, 1961, nine months after his arrival in New York, Dylan was offered a contract with Columbia. Yet the Shelton article and his signing to a major label didn't propel the singer to the top of the village scene overnight. In autumn 61, Izzy Young, the owner of the Folklore Center, had offered to step in as Dylan's makeshift promoter. Yet his attempts to launch the artist as a major draw in his own right proved fruitless. There would be in my store uh, two, three, four, five, six musicians there all the time. So then I could see, hey, this guy's really good. She's terrific. I could put a castle with them. So I had luxury. I could choose what I wanted. You know, the clubs in the village, they had to wait till somebody could get 200 people or 400 people. Um, so uh, I was so sure that Bob Dylan would fill up a theater, a small theater at Carnegie Hall. Uh, I said, let's do a concert. I was blowing my head off. I took a day in the paper. I had a newsletter writing it. I was telling everyone, this is the best I've ever heard in my life. I would have bet a million dollars to run that the place should be packed up. Well, there were some 300 seats, 320 or 280, something like that, about 300. And 52 people came. And 300 people remember the concert now. Shortly after this show, Dylan entered Columbia Studios to record his self-titled debut. Now keen to distance himself from familiar criticisms of being imitative, the young musician decided to abandon his repertoire of Guthrie songs and tackle folk standards and traditionals, some of which he had appropriated from his peers. Although the LP would not prove a commercial success, it nevertheless provided evidence that even at this early stage, Dylan represented something new and original in a scene that was so bound up in tradition. Dylan's first album is an incredible record for a 20-year-old to make. And you look at the face staring out at you from the cover, this baby face, ingenue, you know, and then you listen to this white blues singer inside the record. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's a record that's about Dylan the performer, really, because there are only two of his own compositions on it. But what a performer he is. Ah. 
traditional folk stuff. You know, there was a lot of humor in it, though, and there was, you know, a sense of an individual personality emerging, which was something that, you know, in a certain way, the idea of folk music, like the people, like not you, the individual, like there was an element in folk music that your kind of individuality was supposed to be kind of muted, and you were supposed to be singing these songs as a kind of tribute to the larger community that they emerged from. Like, Dylan was not doing that from the very beginning. Dylan was doing Bob Dylan versions of these songs. I mean, some of which were you know, good, or some of which were not that good, but they were very much him. There is a house down in New Orleans They call People say he can't sing. I think that Dylan was until very recently when his voice really started to get out. A great singer in about a dozen different modes. And you listen to that early stuff and you hear humor and imagination and a sense of possibility. And a sense that he really admires these songs he's singing, but that doesn't mean he's their slave or that he wants to replicate them. He wants to own them. He wants to take these things he loves and make them better as he makes them his. I was born in Dixie in a boomer shack, just a little shanty by the railroad track. Great pain was I told me how to cry, from another girl I was in the love I got the gray train blue. Dylan, at this point, is the most incredible sponge. And I don't use that in a derogatory sense because uh, you only ever learn anything by being a sponge and soaking everything up. And uh, he has soaked all this up as a performer. And then you've got his two first recorded compositions on there, the best of which is his homage to Willie Guthrie, which is heartfelt and already probably streets ahead of the songs that. Anybody else would like to have this time? Hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song. Got a pony, oh, that's a coming along. Seems sick and it's hungry, it's tired and it's torn. It looks like it's a diet and it's hardly been born. It's completely unsurprising and unremarkable that Robert Shelton should have walked into Dirty's and said, Holy mackerel, I like folk music, but then there's this. You know, he changed everything. And I'm just talking about musically now, which is supposed to be where he isn't, where he's not much, doesn't have much of a voice, and all that 
Coppola, we're not talking about the film world, which ultimately, he's also the person that indicates that. I mean, there are exceptions. There are other people writing their own songs by then, but not that yet. And Dylan's own songwriting output began to develop at a prodigious rate after the recording of his debut. Although he was composing occasional songs while back on the Minneapolis scene, his immersion in the Greenwich Village folk world fully liberated his creativity. And by January 1962, on the back of the new material he was producing, John Hammond secured Dylan his first music publishing deal. This led to the recording of a seven-track demo, which collected together songs that the artist had mostly penned during the previous year. I think the early Bob Dylan songs, and there's only two on the debut album, uh, and you know, I wouldn't put money on him being the spokesman of a generation on that evidence. But I mean, he was like prolific, churning songs, um, you know, and beer mats and napkins and envelopes. I mean, he was just churning this stuff out. And a lot of the early Dylan compositions were his lyrics to existing tunes. I mean, uh, Our Time from New York Town came from a 30 song called uh, Down on Penny's Farm, um, Rambling Gambling Willie Pair, the tune that's from Brennan on the Moor by, by the Clancy Brothers and uh, Tommy Macon, who didn't want to see me on Green Village at the time. Old New York City is a friendly old town, from Washington Heights to Harlem on down. There's not a minute people in the middle and all around, and keep moving you up and not doing you down. It's on the country. Yet where this early material lyrically conformed to either semi-autobiographical folk or traditional blues forms, by the end of January 62, Dylan's prolific pen turned unexpectedly towards contemporary protest songs. This shift in subject matter was not only traceable to the times themselves, but also to Dylan's girlfriend during this period, Suze Rotolo, who had moved into the singer-songwriter's apartment at the start of the year. When Dylan met she was 17 years old, but she came from this radical American-Italian family. Her sister, Carla, was working for Alan Lomax, so that opened certain doors. And Suze was a uh, you know, full-on radical political activist. She was working for the uh, campaign of racial equality. She was involved in anti-nuclear protests. She was picketing Woolworths in Manhattan because their branches in the South had segregated lunch counters. I mean, I think Dylan himself admitted that she was there before he was in terms of this, uh, this world of radical protest. As the rumors of the war and the wars that have been, the meaning of life has been lost in the womb. And some people thinking that the end is close by. Instead of learning to live, they are learning to die. Let me die in my footsteps before I go down under the ground. Bob, you know, he was informed by a lot of his left-hand friends. You know, that's what Susie Rowe and people like that. Correct on in the circle. Um, other than that, I think there's some really sort of two people that really influenced him politically, because I don't think that was his number one agenda. But you know, you did hear about all these outrages and these injustices, and he had the ability to extend that, um, well, I should say, extrapolate from 
what he's, what he's heard and these things just kind of hold the resistance that have been shown to him. And he was able to, he was mature to the right. Whether he was really political, um, I don't know.